Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 6 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. And we're talking about this morning doing kingdom work, which we all should be about, right? We're doing kingdom work. Um, you know, it's so interesting to me that these unknown and uneducated uh, men that Jesus chose uh, to follow him in the area of Galilee, it was really a farming area. And these guys were simple. I think the way I envision them is simple, down-to-earth, hard-working kind of people. But what they did was absolutely turn the world upside down. Man, what a joy to be a part of that. You know, if we could summarize Jesus' game plan in two words, it would just be, follow me. That's what he said, right? Follow him. Jesus was basically saying, look, if I can trust you to follow me, you can trust me to lead you. The first disciples trusted, and Jesus led them, and the world has never been the same. All they had were the Old Testament scriptures and the author who was with them to teach them. You know, today we have this high-tech, almost corporate mentality but Jesus' techniques were so simple. You know, it was just he allowed them to watch him minister. And that, he gave them knowledge. He gave them the skills they needed. And he transformed their lives through his relationship with them. These regular, average men. So as Jesus sent them out, he gave them some practical instructions they don't all specifically apply to us, but they do reflect some really important principles for us to learn as we minister. We're all ministers, right? We are all ministers of the gospel. So that's what we want to do. We want to seek to minister in Jesus' name. That's what they were doing. We want to advance God's kingdom. That's what they were doing. So if we put this in the context, right before this in Mark... Uh, we looked at it last week. Jesus is rejected. In fact, in previous weeks. And then what's in the future is John the Baptist is executed. So what's sandwiched right between them is what we're looking at this morning. And if you're taking notes, it's on your outline. These verses in the middle teach us how to live in a climate of rejection. That's where we're living today, right? This is a climate of rejection. You can talk about God. People get really uncomfortable when you're talking about Jesus, when you start talking about him being the only way to God. We have the honor of sharing what God is doing by advancing his kingdom. And this passage gives us some really helpful directions. So what this passage is about, and this is on your outline, the 12 were commissioned and empowered by Christ to serve wherever he sent them. There was an urgency about the work and Jesus tells them not to get weighed down with things they didn't need. He encourages them to live by faith even in the face of rejection and to remember that their main task is to preach the word and advance the kingdom of God. So let's read our passage, Mark 6, beginning at verse 7. Calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, 
no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons <clears throat> and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is God's word. Well, the first thing we see that as a way to minister effectively that we see in, this, in these verses is we look at Jesus' authority in verse 7. Now, there's a subtle shift that takes place between verse 6 and verse 7. Mark's emphasis transitions from Jesus to his disciples and their ministry. And it was time for training the disciples. It was time for them to have some practical training. And so, again, verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. So we go, and this is on your outline, we go in Jesus' authority, and he sent them out as teams. So why teams? Why go two by two? Well, on your outline, teams are safer and wiser. We're in a spiritual battle, <clears throat> And lone rangers are easy targets for the evil one. I've seen this happen so often. People think they don't need others. They think they don't need the church. They can do it on their own. They even think they don't really need to gather as a church. But we know how important that is. We need each other. And these folks were... I've seen people just eaten alive, spiritually speaking, when they're out in the world, by the world, when they're by themselves. We need each other. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor. Two strengthen the impact that one can have alone. I heard a Marine describe his time fighting during World War II, and he said, we were taught to build a ditch for two people. And there were two of us in there. And then he said this. He said, during the heat of battle, fellow warriors must bear equally the duties of fighting. During, and he called it the terrifying silence between enemy attacks. When imagination runs wild, survival depends on mutual encouragement. And the same is true in the church. Two by two still works. A faithful brother or sister in Christ is the one who will tell you, hey, don't give up. Don't even let your mind go there. A friend will be the one <clears throat> who will say, hey, you know what? Think about this side. I'll give you wisdom that you didn't have on your own. Or when you're discouraged, your buddy will come up and say, hey, don't give up. You can make it through this. We need each other. We're never going to handle the rejection of the world unless we have a deep relationship with other believers. That's why we encourage everyone, and we've said this so many times, but we encourage everyone to be a part of a smaller group. We worship shoulder to shoulder, like we're doing this morning. That's so important. To corporate worship is essential. 
but we also need to be face-to-face with people in a smaller group of people that we can live life with, that we can pray for, that know our names and know the names of our kids who love us and will be that encouragement to us that we need. Another reason that two by two were sent out is that it, it kept the cultural norms of the day because according to Deuteronomy 19, it, took, it required two witnesses to verify a matter. And so they went out two by two because that was cultural, but we know that it's so much more than just cultural. The 12 were Jesus' authorized and appointed representatives. And so are we. Paul compliments this idea when he says, we are ambassadors of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, certain that God is is appealing through us. And so Jesus continues his ministry through us, through the church. We represent the king. And so in village after village, they follow Jesus' example and they publicly preach the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about what they preached in just a little bit, but Paul underlines the importance of their preaching in Romans 10 with these rhetorical questions. He says, but how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? And we are the sent ones. We're the ones who go and do the evangelism. When Jesus gave them the authority to preach, he also gave them the authority to cast out demons so that the people would know that these men were from God. The way we can validate people today if they're from God is to test them according to the word of God, the inerrant word of God. The miracles were done in the first century to authenticate the supernatural power of God. And we also see in the miracles God's heart in relieving suffering. God doesn't like suffering. Suffering is a part of our lives and he knows that. Boy, if anyone went through suffering, Jesus went through suffering. God himself, God the Son, suffered. But Jesus was continually tender. He was continually compassionate. And that was such a contrast with the legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And one of the things that God wants each of you to hear loud and clear this morning is that he loves you and invites you to come to him. He says, come to me if you're tired of carrying a heavy burden. Come to me and I will give you a deep rest for your soul. He says in Matthew 11. That's his invitation always for all of us. In fact, and this is on your, on your outline, every Christian ought to be characterized by divine compassion. And when you show compassion to people, that attracts them to the Savior. Compassion makes an impact on people. We don't do it to make an impact. We do it because We want to be like Jesus because Jesus says to be compassionate. And then the second thing that we see here, if we want to minister effectively for the Lord, is that we need a radical faith and not a dependence on things. Jesus taught the disciples to stay lean and mean, if you will. 
In other words, to work hard, to be effective, as effective as they can be, as effective as we can be. He, he delegated his authority, and now he gives the disciples specific instructions. Look at, at verse 8. There, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, <clears throat> but not an extra shirt. Now, this doesn't mean that God is calling all of us to poverty. That's one thing it does not mean. Jesus wanted them to know the truth of the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then later he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So he, what he's saying to his disciples is he said, go and live that out. This is what I want you to live. You know, Kathy and I are so thankful to have a daughter who's a flight attendant. Uh, and and we, we get to fly standby. And, um, you know, the first time our daughter explained this to us, she said, you know, you don't want to be separated from your luggage. And so you probably want to just take a carry-on. And we saw that, like, even if we're gone for three weeks, and she was like, yeah. We were like, that's impossible. Well, what we've learned is it's not impossible. We kind of actually enjoy the challenge now. Uh, <clears throat> and we, uh, yeah, we maybe do a little bit more laundry than we uh, would normally, but we can get along with just a carry-on. Uh, it's amazing what you can do without if you have to be without. And in the first century, travelers carried everything they needed either on their backs or they depended on the hospitality of strangers. They might take it along in a cart or something, but it, it wasn't good in the first century to be carrying large sums of money. Uh, they didn't have law enforcement like we have today, and, and there were robbers waiting everywhere to rob people along routes. In first century Israel, and one thing that, again, was part of the culture, is that hospitality was really a sacred duty. And that was good because even inns weren't safe to stay in because of robbers. And so people would often stay and take advantage of the hospitality that people were offering. And this was true in the first century. And so Jesus' instructions weren't a call to be foolish at all. Again, this is on your outline. The point is that the disciples were to depend on God's provision. And that's what he wants us to depend on. Doesn't mean we don't work hard, but at the same time, we trust God. Instead of loading up a cart full of provisions and taking that with you for several week journey in the first century, Jesus was saying, you go and you trust me. And when they were told to take a staff, remember the roads weren't paved. And so the staff steadied their gait as they walked along. And it could be protection if wild animals would attack them. So the staff was really a practical tool for them to have along. And then their sandals and a tunic on their back. And tunic is shirt. And you, you need an extra shirt if you don't have the opportunity to, to have water to bathe yourself. So there, Jesus is saying, you're gonna, I'm going to provide that for you so you don't need to even take an, a, a second shirt. In Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says something that I'm guessing is familiar to many or most of you you can be sure that God will take care of everything you need 
his generosity exceeding even yours in the glory that pours from Jesus. He'll supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's his promise. Jesus didn't want them to be weighed down with too much preparation. And he didn't want them to stress out over their provisions. He wanted them to focus on the mission that they were given to do, to do that mission. Boy, there's so many things that distract us, aren't there? From what God calls us to do. The minimum amount of provision means the maximum amount of faith, a radical faith. That was what he was calling them to. And radical faith just means that even when, when we have unanswered questions, even when we have God's provision, but not in a way that we want it, we still keep trusting. We trust and we trust more. That's radical faith. We have a master who demands that we are radically obedient. And radical obedience calls for radical faith. And these instructions also point to the urgency of what God had asked them to do. So what does this mean for us? Well, the principle for sure is that we can keep our lives as simple as possible. No matter what our vocation I think we all are learning what it means to simplify. It's actually pretty amazing what we can do without. No one can give you a list of what you need to do to simplify. That's between you and God. But it's something that you should seek him about. Something you should ask him about. I heard someone say that we should determine to live above the downward drag of possessions position, money, or anything else that weighs us down. We're to run with endurance. And how does an endurance runner run? Boy, he runs very lightly. He has really light shoes even. That's how he runs. The apostle Paul said it like this in Philippians 4. Not that I was ever in need, but I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. In other words, Christians, we don't have to be any, we, we don't have to be taken by, by glitz. We don't have to be taken by external beauty or by status. We have to practice saying what Paul said, I'm content with what I have. This is enough. And then focus on serving him. Focus on knowing him. And this leads us to the third instruction that we see in this passage. We're to present the gospel to those who are open and then move on. Starting at verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. I don't know if, uh, I, I'm, I, I know that there will be a certain group of people here who know the name Yogi Berra and another group of people who are too young to know that name. He was a catcher for the New York Yankees in the 60s. And he was famous for a lot of, uh, a, a lot of kind of funny sayings. Like, it ain't over till it's over. Or when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Or... It's like deja vu all over again. 
this first phrase, at the first glance anyway, wherever you are, stay there till you leave, almost seems like it came from Yogi Berra. But it didn't. It came from Jesus. And in New Testament times, like I said, inns were still dangerous places to stay. And so the people would stay in people's homes as they traveled. False teachers had a reputation of abusing that. And they would go within a town from one home to another and get them. They would take advantage of them. They would ask for money and support from them. And Jesus said, hey, you do it simply. And then you present the gospel and then you go to the next town. Don't think about changing houses. Don't do what the false teachers were doing. Stick with one family and then move on to the next city. They were to accept what was offered and be grateful for what was offered. They weren't to dishonor the kindness of one home by going to a nicer home. The Apostle Paul says, I've learned to be content in all the circumstances I'm in. And that's what Jesus was saying the disciples needed to do. Contentment is realizing that God has given me everything I need for where I'm at right now. And then thanking him for it, having a grateful, thankful attitude. You know, for me, contentment means that God is sovereign. That if something happens that I'm not expecting to happen, I can, I can take a deep breath and I can relax and say, God, I know you're in charge. It's going to be really exciting to see what happens next. This is the warning that Paul gave about that to Timothy, the same issue. He says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil in 1 Timothy 6. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So he was saying to Timothy, hey, as you're preparing to be a pastor, here's what you need to keep in mind. As you're, and then we can apply, all of us can apply this as we minister for the Lord. And if people aren't receptive, Jesus explains what to do. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And so you have this on your outline. Next thing is we're also to exercise discernment. When you sense it's no longer time for you to leave that you leave the results in God's hands, we don't control how people respond. We control the presentation of the message. We need to know what we're going to say. But once they respond, you know, we say, hey, you know, God bless you. And, and, and we go somewhere else. Because God is preparing hearts. We don't know what hearts he's preparing, but, but we can go and share and we'll find receptive hearts. And so what, what, what is the message for us here? It's on your outline again. On the one hand, serve people. That's what we're called to do. And on the other hand, we're not afraid to tell the truth, to preach the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Jesus said to expect to be persecuted. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, why would you think they wouldn't persecute you? And so we expect rejection. We don't fear it. And then finally, we're to preach the word. Look at verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They preached the kingdom was at hand and what people needed to do to prepare for that kingdom, for living in that kingdom, being a part of that kingdom. 
And the result was that, verse 13, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This was a foretaste of what we, the church, would do, what the church would do throughout the centuries in preaching the gospel. And the truth we need to remember here, and this is again on your outline, is if there's any success in ministry, God is responsible. It's not us. It's not about us. It's about him. You know, in my estimation, Martin Luther is one of those brilliant minds the church has been blessed with, right up there with Jonathan Edwards and, and others who just were amazing men of God, but also had minds that were just, uh, God gifted them with great minds. And they used them for the kingdom of God. And Martin Luther, but if you've never read his biography by Eric Metaxas, I would highly recommend it. It's, I've read it a couple times and it's, it's wonderful to read. But um, Luther said this, he said, I, at the beginning of the Reformation, he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote the word of God. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip, the word of God continued to work. I did nothing. The word did it all. And so we're faithful to preach the word and we know that the word will not return void. God will plant it in people's hearts as he wants. And then God will draw people to himself as he wants. But it depends on God, not on us. It depends on us as far as we're faithful to present the gospel. But God's word is powerful, right? It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we need to use it we need to use it in our own lives. We need to use it when we present it to other people. It doesn't mean you need to quote chapter and verse. If I had a knife here and, I, and you said, this isn't a knife and I stabbed you with it, and you said, I don't still think that's not a knife. I mean, that would hurt. But the word of God, you don't, you don't have to, someone doesn't have to, to know it's the word of God or even agree that it's the word of God for you to use it as the word of God. And I want to go back to what he says that we're to preach because he says we're to preach that people should repent. What does that mean to repent? John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. We know from Acts chapter 2 that the, the, that the apostles preached, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, repentance must be a part of what we communicate when we communicate the gospel. And what is repentance? You've got a definition there. Repentance is the grace of God that leads one to true humility and to true life change. To true humility and to true life change. The English Puritan Thomas Watson gave this helpful definition. You've got it on your outlines. He said, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Let me tell you what repentance is not. It is not beating yourself up and say, yes, I will change, I will change, I promise, I will change. That is not repentance. There are so many ways to approach what the Bible says about repentance. But I want to stick to the Bible and Psalm 51 actually gives us a really great 
pattern, if you will, an explanation of what biblical repentance is. You can turn there if you want in your Bibles, or I've got kind of the key verses written on the outline. But Psalm 51 was written by David after Nathan, the prophet, confronted him with his sin. And what we see in Psalm 51, and this is again on your outline, is that repentance is a turning away from sin and turning toward God. You can't have one without the other. And so how do we grow in the habit, and I really believe it is a habit that all Christians must develop, the habit of repentance? Well, the first thing is to call a sin a sin. We don't minimize sin. We don't excuse sin. We confess it before God. In verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 51, Depending on your translation, David uses three different words for sin. Uh, common ones that in translations I looked at were iniquity and sin and transgressions. Maybe others in your translation. But we know that we're to begin by agreeing with God that we've sinned. And there's a certain humility that comes with confession. We humble ourselves before God. We're, we're not telling God anything new when we confess our sin. We're agreeing with him that we've got a problem and, and we, can, we, we let him know what those sins are. I think it is helpful to remember too that David was, uh, he did write this psalm after he was confronted, after he was caught in the act and confronted, well, he was called out, if you will, by Nathan, the prophet. So the next thing in verse one is we're to ask God for his mercy. We're to ask God for his mercy. It's on your alley. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. David asks sincerely for God's forgiveness. And based on what we know of David and his character and based on what David knew about God and his character, he knows that God is a God of mercy. He knows that God is committed to him in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. And it's a relationship of unfailing love. And so we can come to God because of his covenant with us through Jesus. And next, we understand that all sin is ultimately against God. That's part of that next, that first one, we need to understand that all sin is ultimately against God. David's sin hurt many people. Uh, it hurt Uriah, the Hittite. It hurt the, his kingdom. His whole kingdom was impacted by this. And we always need to make it right with others when they're involved in our sin. But ultimately, our sin is against God. And that's the way we need to see it. The next thing that Psalm 51 points us to, to do is to repent, is to look to Jesus. In verse seven, you go, well, wait a second. How is that in Psalm 51? Well, I'll tell you. Verse seven says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And according to Exodus chapter 24, hyssop represented, signified the purification by blood. And this is exactly what the author to the Hebrews knew was referring to Jesus when he writes in Hebrews chapter nine, that Jesus sacrificed himself once for all, summing up all other sacrifices in this sacrifice of himself. The final solution of sin. And so it points us to look to Jesus. David didn't know that, but we know that. 
And so we go to Jesus. And then look at verse eight. We need to ask God to break us and to heal us. Verse eight says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. It's never pleasant when God reveals to us just how unholy we are. Think of it like a doctor resetting a fractured bone. It is God who breaks us. It is God who sets the bone. It is God who sets us. And it is God who heals. It's like David saying, you have broken me, now give me back my joy again. And that leads to the next one because the joy does come. We're comforted by the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, David prays. We know the Holy Spirit is at work in David's life by the fact that he's grieved over his sin. And so when you grieve over your sin, be encouraged because that means the Holy Spirit is working in your life to give you again ultimately the joy that you have in Christ. He's causing you to hate what God hates. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why we need the discipline of repentance in our lives. And the next step to true repentance is to be joyful and tell others the good news. David asks God to make him so joyful about his salvation that he won't be able to help but talk to people about the good news. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. That's what David says. That's what he prays. And you know what happens, what I find? We often do the opposite of this. We get so down on ourselves because of our sin that we pull back from talking about the Lord. We pull back from fellowship when we should be leaning into it. We forget about God's grace we somehow think that if we're not, that, that if we're, unless we're perfect, that we're going to dishonor the Lord by talking to others about him. And David says, no, that's not true. We can, we can, even in spite of our sin, we can still rejoice in the Lord. We can, we can open our, mouth, our mouths and tell others about Jesus. And then finally, repentance should include a resolve to obey, a resolve to obey God. And we do that not on our own power, but with the strength of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. You know, here's the thing. We can do everything that we talked about just now about repentance. But if we, in our minds, just plan on sinning again, then we've forgotten the grace of God. That's not repentance. The grace of God has not really taken root in our lives. The mark of true repentance is to be broken and contrite and to remain that way. And what I find when talking with people is that, you know what? I, I find people often play games with God. 
We want to be Christ-like, but we want to dabble in sin too. And that's a dangerous place to be. We think we can just add Christ to our lives without subtracting sin, without really praying and, and seeking help and accountability with sin. But salvation is repenting and believing. Now, I read about a young boy who uh, was out chasing butterflies. He fell in a field and, and uh, thought he was okay. He thought he had something in his eye, went and had it checked out. Couldn't see anything. Some months later, he complained of cloudy vision in, in the eye that he had complained about initially. They couldn't find anything in. He went back to the doctor. They gave him an exam, and they found that a little minuscule seed had implanted itself in this little boy's cornea, and it started to grow. And the cloudiness were too many leaves that were there, and they had to do surgery to remove it from, from him for him to be able to have his sight saved. And you know what? For us, sometimes we sin and we think it's so terrible. And we forget about it. But sin has a way of implanting itself in our hearts. And it can do serious damage to our lives. In fact, it can destroy us. It'll blur our vision. It'll make us take our eyes off of Jesus. And that is Satan's goal. Remember, we're in a spiritual battle. Satan's not going to give up easy. And so is there any sin that you have allowed to take root in your life? I'll give you the same words of Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles. Repent. Turn from your sin. Follow these steps. Make this a part of your prayer time this week. These, this part of repentance in Psalm 51. Work through that. Forsake the sin in your life. Seek Jesus in your life. Remember that you're in a spiritual battle. And unless it, that sin is removed, it's, it's only Jesus that can do it. It's only by focusing on the cross. And if you don't know Jesus, that's where you start. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand these truths about ministry and about repentance. We, we don't want to just know these things. We want to be blessed by doing them. Help us, Lord, to be eager to repent and not be forced to do it because we want to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And so teach us to repent joyfully. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, may they just respond in faith and put their trust and confidence in you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.